uh, a researcher I know, they have documented what 12,700 individual protests against energy and food price increases, wow. mainly energy. This is wow. the, this is the okay. thing about time. So, so there's a two-way thing happening here. Mm. And the okay, other thing since, that I since when, by the way, that was between 21 and 22. So okay, wow, okay, crazy. So it's and in 90 countries. So so okay. this is huge elsewhere as well. But okay. I think it's interesting that. I mean, no one covers it. I'm, I'm like, why yeah. doesn't the Guardian cover that? Why doesn't the Norwegian <laughs> media cover that? But they yeah. celebrate Tinubu removing the subsidy and end of story. So today we are joined by um, a guest that has been much anticipated by us. And I think by a few of the people who know us and listen to the show to the show. Um, and that is Camilla Howland, who is a researcher at FAFO Norway, um, and an associate professor in sociology and human geography at the University of Oslo. Um, and amongst her other interests, she focuses on trade unions, labor and climate change, um, and has had a long term research, um, and political, I think I could say engagement with Nigeria. So Camilla, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation now. Yeah, it's kind of been a long time coming, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, it's like like various um, labor-related things. Scheduling has been crucial, um, but not always on our side. So it's just really great to have you. And it's good that it's, um, that it's finally worked out. Um, so... I have attempted a brief introduction of you, but um, actually, I think for our listeners, it'd be interesting to hear a little more about your research um, and engagement with the question of subsidy politics in Nigeria and labor unions. So yeah, could you tell us a bit more about your research and then maybe where the issue of the subsidy might fit in? Sure. Um, I think uh, I it all started first time i came to nigeria was in 2005 uh mm. then uh interested in oil and norwegian oil company engagement in the niger delta and i it really struck me and stayed with me and i started mm. working as an african advisor in the trade unions later and um and had engagement and communication with the Nigerian Labour Congress and the oil worker unions. And I found generally that there was a complete difference between my experience of a powerful union mm -hmm. and a complete lack of talk about unions in development and Africa circles in Norway mm -hmm. and elsewhere. So. I applied for a PhD, and the idea then was to explore the specific power and agency of the Nigerian Union given the political economy of oil. Mm -hmm. So, and and I say power and agency as two different things because it's a little bit important here because okay. to me, power is kind of inherent ca capabilities, uh, whereas agency is more. Uh, subjective about the willingness to use these capabilities. Okay. So I'm I'm a bit interested in both in what is the kind of structural 
possibilities of a union and how do they strategize and using them. Mm. And this, I got the PhD in 2011, and this is only three months before January uprising mm. or Occupy Nigeria. So I completely shifted my PhD to center around the subsidy and trying to understand the union's role in it and why the subsidies were so important to the unions. Mm. And since then, I followed the politics of fuel subsidies and Nigerian unions. Mm. Okay, yeah. excellent. I mean, yeah, so it sounds like the subsidy politics, the questions of subsidy and politics are fairly central um, to your research interests, actually. Um, Absolutely. Okay, excellent. Um, and I think, yeah, we may come back to the question of power and agency later, because that's that sounds quite fascinating. Um, but I think we should probably start in terms of the substantive bit of the conversation with a fairly basic question, maybe. Um, and it's one that, um, I mean, some people will be aware of, um, but maybe not in as much detail as you might. So, um, I mean, it might be a tough one to kind of summarize very quickly, but um, we're going to put you on the spot and see if you can do that. Um, so basically, you know, the question is, why did Nigeria institute a full subsidy to begin with? Um, and I guess what would you say is the origin also of the pressure to remove the subsidy, you know, which is really where the conversation that we've been having on this show have picked up? Mm. I think on the first one, it's, I wish I had read original kind of policy documents from the mm. politicians that be. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, I've been reading a lot of history sources and they actually don't agree when they started these subsidies. But okay. let's say late 60s, early 70s, depending on mm. the sources, um, okay. uh, it was decided to have cheap fuel. And in the literature, it says it was to give something back to the Nigerians in times of, of uh, oil production peaking. But I think it's also important that this is in in a time of still some kind of development optimism and a time where the developmental state was the yeah. key thing. And and during the 70s, money poured in to the Nigerian state from oil at the time sure. when they actually built some kind of welfare state, mm. not necessarily like my own Norwegian super welfare state, but yeah. at least building an education system, a health system that was relatively accessible, relatively yeah. free, and subsidies uh, was part of that kind of big political plan. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, no, that's interesting, and yeah. I guess that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, and but it, because it's, I think also the the relative significance of subsidy is also important because mm -hmm. when the first attempt to reduce the price in 78 there was no protest that was mm. under obasanjo's first uh, presidency mm -hmm. and okay. my hypothesis is that it didn't make so much difference because there was relatively high levels of of uh, welfare mm -hmm. in so that's I I don't know if I'm right, but I think I'm I think I'm right on that mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. uh, and the pressure to remove it, uh, 
that was also since 78 and onwards because the Nigerian subsidies, and it's important also to, to mention that this is a very common thing to do for oil producing countries to subsidize okay. fuel for mm -hmm. its citizens, not least in the Middle East and many North African countries. Uh, the US has done this, etc., etc. But the Nigerian way of doing it is that there is no inbuilt mechanism to adjust prices. Okay. And when the market prices internationally go up, the expenses for subsidies will go up. Mm. And there is no real mechanism of adjusting prices. And historically, this is where labor comes in. The protests have has been a way of securing continued subsidies, but also a way of adjusting prices. Okay. If, if that makes sense. So yeah. And and that kind of disappears a bit from the Nigerian conversation because mm. the pressure of removing it has been there since before the big IMF and structural adjustment program, but it was in the same time because this became right. more and more expensive at a time when the state had during the 70s also overexpended. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a crisis and we can discuss why this was a crisis blah 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 and yeah. whether the the suggested remedy from the IMF of of saving money and cutting costs was a very good one. But at least that was the idea both from the Nigerian elites and and presidents and pressure not least from the the imf in in uh, handling the loans that came after the 70s expenditure and the economic yeah. collapse right so it has been a way of saving money basically the to remove the subsidy has been uh -huh. throughout history a way of saving state money that has right. been also the reason why it's being removed now Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because it's expensive yeah sure. and yeah so the pressure has come from the international community uh developing partners imf world bank the economic yeah. elites etc and in that regard it's been kind of amazing that this kind of powerful pressure of removing subsidies that have been called inefficient and mm -hmm environmentally and friendly and like you discussed last uh, episode uh, that it's supposedly going only to the elites and the mm -hmm. upper middle classes but labor and poor people have resisted this consistently since 1980s through right. strike and protest mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually that's a question we want to come back to in a moment the question of resistance because I know it's um, you know, even as you were saying in the introduction, quite a central part of the work you do on the subsidy. Um, I'm fascinated by two aspects of mm. what you were saying. Um, you know, the first being around the pricing mechanism, um, mm. you know, that is often associated with um, subsidy regimes elsewhere, but not exactly in Nigeria. Um, you know, and also the question of like oil, the oil boom and bust cycle, which mm. seems seems central <clears throat> to the pricing question, right? Because as you're describing, like the 70s when the subsidy 
um, expanded initially. The early 70s were a period where oil prices were were high. So mm. Nigeria was reaping quite, um, you know, like a substantial uh, revenue from the sale of crude. But at the same time, had to buy oil um, since like the capacity to refine sufficient uh, amounts of crude oil to meet domestic um, demand was not in place. Um, so, and then, you know, by the end of the 70s, as you're describing with the Obasanjo regime, when the oil price um, had collapsed, suddenly the government was facing, you know, new pressures that it hadn't necessarily anticipated at the start of the boom. And one of the, you know, kind of seemingly most obvious, uh, you know, like, cost-saving arenas in the in the budget was the subsidy um so i guess yeah that highlights the question you're you're you're, you're raising or the issue you're raising about the pricing um you know and, and i guess you know not to get too technical um but just maybe in very general terms like what what are the other kinds of sort of pricing mechanisms that might exist in countries that have subsidies um, that we don't quite have in Nigeria. And I just wonder, you know, even if in just kind of broad strokes, whether you could help paint a picture for us of what of what that might look like. As I understand it, it's mm -hmm. it's linked to to market prices, so that when market prices goes up, the price of fuel will also go up, but not necessarily okay. be equal to the market price. Ah, uh, okay. So, so it's like so, yeah. some some kind of fair adjustment. Some kind of adjustment, yeah. Right. And okay, and it okay. will always be, if you, I've been reading a lot of global reports on the development of fuel subsidies, and it's been celebrated every now and again, like mm -hmm. uh, in um, in uh, after the oil boom that lasted until twenty fourteen fifteen, mm -hmm. suddenly prices went down, and international consultants and the IMF will say now is a good time to remove the subsidies. Sure. But basically that means that the consumers won't notice because okay. you take away the subsidy because there's no need for any subsidies because sure. the market prices and the subsidized prices have leveled out. Right. But what happens in practice is then when prices go up again because the market goes up, then yeah. the protest may come. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it... it so IMF yeah. says that the most difficult thing with removing these inefficient uh, subsidies is popular protests because mm -hmm. the subsidies are very popular, right? Especially in countries where there's low welfare state and yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean that leads right on to the to one of the big questions, you know, that we were very interested in, which is about popular protest and the ways in which popular protest emerge or don't emerge in response to subsidy removals. So I, I, I've noticed in your work that one kind of crucial moment for you, and you mentioned this earlier as, you know, even coinciding with the start of your PhD was the 2012 general strike in Nigeria, um, which, you know, also is known or seemed to coincide with um, what was at the time called the Occupy Nigeria protests. Mm. You know, and these took place right after um, the uh, announcement was made 
by the federal government on January 1st, I believe, 2012, that mm. the subsidies would no longer exist, basically. Um, and yeah, instantaneously, um, or pretty shortly thereafter, the price um, of petroleum products, particularly um, like fuel for cars, um, increased dramatically. Mm. So, I mean, I think what was striking was how quickly the labor movement um, and a lot of civil society and youth groups responded both physically in terms of like mass mobilizations onto the street and digitally, you know, and in some ways, a lot of people date the kind of birth of Nigerian kind of online protest culture to Occupy. So, I mean, I guess, yeah, using Occupy is maybe a, a window into the subsidy protest I suppose it'd be interesting to hear a little bit from you about, you know, firstly, like why Occupy happened um, mm. and then, you know, what its legacies were. And maybe, I mean, was it, was Occupy, was it unique or new or different in, in any way? You, you know, what, what makes that moment, I think, um, like of particular interest to you? And well, that's a, a big few questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I try, try, try to load them up all at once. Okay, I'll I'll try to to keep it short and say in a in many ways there are uh, three stories here. Mm. Uh, one is the labor story that um, since trade unions in Nigeria have on a regular basis resisted and protested fuel subsidy removals, mm -hmm. especially since the eighties. Sure. Uh, and a lot of people don't associate 1993 and all the protests around uh, the, the mm. lost elections of yeah. June 12, etc. Mm -hmm. All these things were actually interconnected with fuel subsidy protests mm. as as That's a key ingredient of that. But and mm. then there was a long period of no strike and no protest because of the Abacha regime and the imprisonment of union leaders and, and opposition, mm. etc. And then we have mm -hmm. democracy coming up uh, in 1999. And between 1999 and 2007, there were no less than six strikes led okay. by the NLC against fuel subsidy removals, mm -hmm. where Adam Soshimola, now the APC, was a key figure and a leader of the unions. So yeah, for a, labor, close friend, a, a close friend of Emeka's as well, I should say. So, um. <laughs> yes. but, yeah. but for unions, 2012 was just kind of a continuance of a long history of subsidy strikes and, and labor okay. strike and resistance against uh, subsidy removal. But mm -hmm. there also mm -hmm. happens this new generation, which less... Uh, with less ties to unions and also mm -hmm. fewer ideas and historical uh, remembering of the strikes that saw mm -hmm. this as a new thing. So for me, when I've been right. talking to people in all sides, in, it was almost like there were parallel events mm. that from the outside looked like a massive coordinated protest Mm -hmm. But when you talk to people, it seems like a disorganized uh, strike and protest with many actors 
right. that had different reasons and different means and different organizational systems to go into this. Mm -hmm. If that somehow makes sense. So 2012 mm. was different in the setup uh, and in the actors involved. There was a new generation. Uh, it was often talked about like the youth and Twitter generation, uh, mm. social media. And, and many of those did not have that kind of history with unions. And then you have. But there's also another thing because it it was talked about as a sudden thing when yeah. Good Luck Jonathan on January 1st announced now it is removed, the subsidy. Mm -hmm. Sure. But it had been announced in October, mm. the removal of the subsidy. And okay. Occupy Nigeria had already been formed. So there were the unions declared in October that they will resist, like they always had. Okay. So it, it was a prepared system. And Occupy had already started preparing. And the resistance and announced threat of strike led uh, the government then to initiate a dialogue process. This mm. dialogue process was also fragmented. They had dialogue with unions, they had dialogue with different civil society organizations. But it was announced to happen in April. So it was still a very surprise to Nigerians. Mm. Mm -hmm. It was not a, a surprise that it would be removed, but when it was removed and how it was sure. removed. Sure, sure, sure. So, so there was there was an element of shock. You could say. an element of shock. You also discussed this last uh, episode. This kind of sudden shock therapy, mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. if you ask about what, why did it happen at this time, there's a lot of speculation on mm. on the minister of finance being out of the country and the minister okay. of oil and energy pushing the agenda <laughs> to speed up because maybe the oil and energy minister would actually benefit from not removing it. This mm. is all speculation, but I think it's interesting because Quite. it's also who benefits. What you did not discuss so much uh, last episode was mm -hmm. it, you, you talked about the, the benefit of cheap oil from, from a class perspective. Is it the poor or the workers or the middle classes and the rich? Yeah. But the system of subsidy, there's also mm. a lot of corruption. Sure. And very, very strong interest in the NNPC and yeah. in the oil complex as such mm -hmm. of keeping the subsidies because there are individuals who get access to a lot of corruption and lots yeah. of money through the system. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think the subsidy, in a sense, or at least a part of it, um, maybe might belong in, in what we call the scam hall of fame here, because mm. surely there are aspects of it that, you know, I think the polite way of putting it is are very inefficient. And I think mm. the, um, the more um, kind of uh, straightforward way of putting it are that, you know, they're kind of embedded in various kind of systems of interest and corruption. I think that's partially um, cultivated or, or um, sustained by the fact that there's a very opaque regime of who is permitted to import refined petroleum, um, mm. all managed by the NMPC, which 
is at one hand, you know, or was at least, um, on one hand, the regulator in the oil industry, and on the other hand, was a player, was a participant, um, you know, buying, um, you know, or importing or permitting the importation of uh, refined products, you know, while also, um, you know, supposedly overseeing the entire um, sector. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of, yeah. Yeah. Just to add on the, the a third aspect is also that then NPC also owns the refineries that don't work. So, right. <laughs> and, yes. And, and there's Officially. an explicit interest in not uh maintaining and uh, keeping the the indeed capacity of the refineries in place because the subsidy so there's a kind of yeah. inbuilt problem in the system here absolutely at, at the very least quite a dramatic conflict of interests mm. um i mean so before i hand off to america I, I guess there's a there's another part of that question i was trying to tack on initially that i'd be interested in hearing your reflections on and it's basically um, or it basically concerns the legacy of oh. Occupy. So yeah, I wonder how you would. I wonder how you'd reflect on that now. You know, so many years after the fact. Like, did did Occupy? You know, so you're saying that there were some particularities to Occupy. Um, you know, of course there had been subsidy protests before, but you know, the sort of um, participation of this kind of new generation um, was perhaps one unique aspect. Um, but yeah, I wonder. I wonder how you would consider the legacies of Occupy, um, you know, sort of, you know, looking back on it so many years after the fact. Yes, um, I wrote a full article about this where I mm. say, on the one hand, I think the impact has been underestimated in the narrative. Oh, we had a protest and nothing really happened. Right. Yeah. Uh, where I think the the direct impact on politics and policies are have been huge mm -hmm. for okay. example uh i i tend to uh quote uh a scholar in a nigerian scholar in in uh, canada who says about the earlier protests that the the impact of labor protests have been remarkable mm -hmm. basically saying that we have the most powerful actors internationally and nationally wanting to remove the subsidies, but mm -hmm. the protests have effectively resisted that removal over time and consistently, and therefore mm -hmm. also resisted um, uh, deregulation of the downstream sector in Nigeria. That in itself is quite huge. Sure, sure. And And we tend to forget that even though the subsidies came back it was right. never realistic that it would come back at, to the same prices because of this price mechanism that i talked about yeah it, it yeah. just unrealistic mm. so that is is one thing and yeah. i also think it had a direct impact on the 2015 elections mm. with this mm -hmm. new sense of agency in in parts of civil society that contributed yeah. to the uh, merger of um, into APC yeah, and sure. in many ways invigorated the 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 campaign of the opposition which mm -hmm. led to the first election in Nigerian history where an opposition party wins in a civil election mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and in Kambuhari 
the campaign was about change. It's literally reflected a lot of the the wordings of the street in 2012, etc. Mm -hmm. So I think there are some institutional impacts that tends to be underestimated. Yeah. Um, I think also the youth campaign of uh, not too young to vote and all these things also sprang out of this agency that came uh, with youth. But there's kind of a contradictory impact too, which is uh, a disappointment. Yeah, of sure. things not happening that led to a lot of apathy uh, mm -hmm. because the impacts weren't sense big enough. And I, I think this is partly related to how we talk about it, but this sense of something big about to happen and then it also contracts before your eyes. Yeah, But maybe also from a kind of social movement perspective, mm -hmm. it this what I think is a fragmentation in civil society and the what in the 90s and even in the early 2000s for where labor was kind of the voice of civil society the mm -hmm. and of democracy, etc. Suddenly that position was challenged in during Occupy. Sure. Uh, where yeah. other actors claimed ownership to mm -hmm. subsidies and of the protest and voicing the the uh, I don't know the the common Nigerian uh, yeah yeah and and this kind of difference in ideas of of representation and the role of labor that mm -hmm. fragmentation I would like to hear your <laughs> uh, reflection mm. on but my impression yeah. is that instead of Bridging that after 2012, it has been cemented and the division is almost worse than it was then. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. And and for maybe sure. also I think it generally from me being a kind of a labor person and interested mm -hmm. in labor specifically, I think it also highlighted very, very high expectations on labor that is not yeah. necessarily rooted in a realistic idea about the power and potential and capabilities of labor. Sure. Uh, and then maybe also labor changed its strategy. Yeah. Maybe. Or did right. it? <laughs> um, that's literally our next question to you. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll let, I'll let, I'll let Emeka phrase it um, in a moment, but just to say, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, I think your reflections on, on yeah. how Occupy was like kind of, I don't know, like um, a sort of moment of reckoning in the relationship mm. between labor and the broader civil society. And, you know, it kind of created rifts that haven't necessarily been healed and might kind of have hardened actually since then mm. is, is, is spot on. I, th I think that definitely reflects, you know, like um, my own analysis anyway of, of, of what's happened since then. And, um, you know, yeah, maybe Amecas as well. Mm. Mm. Wow. Um, thanks again, Camilla, for you know um joining us today for this for this episode. Uh, and I must say that just listening to you um I'm I, okay, am I am I should thank you rather, you know, for for you know your responses and insights into you know some of the issues. Um, 
I'd, I'd start by saying that, you know, I found your um, what's the word now? The difference that you, you um, try to make about agency and power of the labor unions, you know, quite, you know, interesting. Yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm kind of um, drawn to connecting that to um, this inbuilt price mechanisms that you talked about, especially in more um, developed um, countries who had to deal with, you know, resistance to, to subsidy removal or just generally subsidy removal, you know, itself, mm -hmm. you, you know, but I, I, so I, I don't know, um, perhaps maybe I should also try and answer that question about G G June 12, uh, sorry, I said June 12, um, yeah, the occupy, <laughs> the occupy, the occupy movement, the yeah. protest yeah. of of two twelve. Um, I think that you know uh, to speak to to the the question that you pose about the fragmentation. You know, um, I think that one thing to say, or that is useful to say about you know that protest is is that it's something about the coalition. You know, that made it possible. Where yeah. even though the, the labor unions play a substantive role, um, th there's also the role that was played by you know um, the then opposition, you know, in terms of you know political parties. Yeah, um, yeah. it's useful to the extent that um, as we speak today, um, the mm -hmm. then opposition is is now in government, and and the, the guys who've you know gone on to actually yank yank you know subsidies totally basically mm. you know um so mm -hmm. yeah that fragmentation has come you know full circle if you if you like right yeah yeah um, yeah even though that some of the major players you know have left the scene especially on on um yeah on both parts on both you know the labor union side and and the opposition or i mean um the guys, the guys who have now, you know, taking subsidy off the table, but right. I—that's mm. kind of my inroad into asking, you know, first by saying that um, I, I don't know how do you respond to how you'd respond to um, the feeling, you know, so I, I don't want to say general feeling, but it's kind of the feeling in Nigeria, you know, right now that. Um, labor movement you know labor unions have slowly adjusted you know their stance to subsidy removal by that you know that's a sheer resistance uh, and that's been a gradual thing from since 2012 you know uh, to more emphasis on local refining capacity and alternatives to petrol you know um mostly around talk regarding compressed natural gas as well as the uh, as the auto gas alternatives you know um so i guess my question is if if you agree that this shift has happened or is happening 
you know, um, how would you think, how would you then think of, of the shift itself, you know? Mm. I don't know if you can help us, you know, um, um, I have my perspectives, but that's not necessarily the the full on. But I think uh, I'll I'll uh, throw throw one uh, question back to you, Emeka, which you can that you can think about when when I I reflect, because mm. I think uh, one of the big changes since 2012 is the popular ideas about subsidies and mm. you also mentioned in the last uh, episode that whereas in 2012 you were in the streets and against uh, the removal whereas now you're more ambivalent uh, <laughs> and i mm -hmm. my my sense is that 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 is a very common thinking among yeah. people and a lot of actors that were on the streets in 2012 supported the removal already in 2016 when Buhari when the prices changed um so so i think yeah especially on kind of the political thinkers and um that there's a change so before before i say something about labor i think that there's something happening in the political landscape up until yeah um the, the Buhari time all politicians in opposition were against the removal and all sitting politicians wanted to remove mm -hmm. <laughs> that was part of the political dance and when the opposition yeah. came into power they changed their mind and wanted to remove there's there's an interesting thing with buhari who actually insisted on up until the the last days that he was not for removing but he had mm -hmm. to remove or mm -hmm. adjust prices because so he had a different kind of rhetoric than earlier presidents on this but sure. this election also highlighted that all the bigger political players wanted to remove the subsidies mm. it was it was not a popularity contest of the opposition to to get the support or of uh, the votes through supporting subsidies mm -hmm. that is kind of the first major election where that happens as i understand it so there's yeah. there's a change in ideas and and remembering that um tinubu he was part of the occupy 2012 he talked mm -hmm. about this removal as a breach of a social contract buhari mm -hmm. was against it there was a lot of the apc people who were against it and who they all changed their mind and i think right. it's not just an elite change but that doesn't mean that it's not felt on the ground the price but the ambivalence on about the subsidy and the structures the politics the corruption mm -hmm. it's it's becoming more and more difficult to support the subsidy because it's associated more and more with for instance corruptions and yeah. i uh, my my friend um uh isaac kosuoka from uh, the social action wrote a, a piece about the um the one of the other effects of of 2012 the exposure of corruption even though all nigerians knew that the subsidy was associated with corruption the size and share hugeness of it yeah, yeah was seen as surprising when the lawal 
commission came up with its findings uh, mm -hmm. and all the associated things around that. So, uh, and so, and I think there are some things that are also very different in 2023 uh, compared to 2012 that are relevant for context. Mm -hmm. Whereas 2012 came in a boom period. The yeah. Nigeria was seen as, I mean, all kind of growth numbers went up mm -hmm. yep. on a macro level. Yeah. But the Africa rising period. Exactly. Exactly. It was the Africa yeah. rising and everyone expected Nigeria to be the next emerging economy. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of investments and expectations. But the people in Nigeria generally didn't feel it. The inequality was on the rise mm -hmm. and poverty was on the rise. So, so that context in itself is extremely potent when it comes to sure. resistance. Sure. Today, there's recession, uh, mm -hmm. inflation, economic crisis, uh, state budgets are inflated and something needs to be done. So, and apathy is higher. I think yeah. to, to protest, you need to have a sense that it makes a difference to protest. Yeah. So, so there's a, a context that is more difficult, the economy is more difficult, and there's this apathy and sense of the subsidy scheme is just, I don't know, it's, it seems like it's, it's not this kind of social and economic right and a benefit for people in the same way, at mm -hmm. least not as simple as it may have felt before. So this is, mm -hmm. of course, kind of exaggerating and and still not wanting to say that it's not super important to the economy sure. so now after all that i come to labor mm. i don't <laughs> think labor has changed that much mm. Mm. okay so in terms because all the things that you you say this um um focus on the refinery the minimum wage all these things have been with labor since forever Mm. This. Mm -hmm. and when i interviewed people about the 2012 what what they wanted uh out of the negotiations etc they they were quite clear that and even osho Mola during his nlc days was kind of open to privatization and mm. deregulation in itself mm -hmm. but it was a question of how mm -hmm. and on what terms it should be with dialogue processes uh, especially with labor but in democratic processes and yeah. uh, instead of the idea that the imf and and political leaders saying that well we can cushion this by other kind of welfare benefits you know there was sure. the shore p program back then yeah. uh, so labor said well enough you may remove a subsidy but we will not accept it before we see it it must be right. in place before we can accept. Right. So they've said that also 10, 15 years back. Okay. But somehow it was not so obvious in the public, but in the mm -hmm. the NLC documents and in my interviews with Labour, this has pretty much been the same. Mm. So, mm. so there has been more of a, an ambivalence in Labour all the time. Okay. Okay, so then so, it's kind of been a, a sequencing uh, question. 
like yeah so for me that what you describe as different is not necessarily different what i would say is different is that um there has been a leadership change from uh an extremely charismatic and powerful leader <laughs> mm-hmm. uh who knew how to navigate the 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 system with um uh Osho Mola and when yep. there was not a lot of challenges from other civil society to maybe a less uh strong leadership mm-hmm. um just coming from from the public sector means that you have less negotiating capacity than if you come from the private sector in Nigeria when you talk about kind of the individual <laughs> capacity of leading a protest or a negotiation right. process right. Uh, and mm. a lot of the people who were kind of hands on in the first decade of uh, of this century they are not necessarily hands-on or in the union movement but there has okay. also been a long-term weakening of the unions uh with pressure from outside on labor rights and harassment and loss of membership and structures etc etc so i think the my impression is also when you when you and this is what, what my, my impression that there has been a time where the NLC has not necessarily prioritized kind of the social movement side of itself mm. as much as it used to be during the 80s and 90s um and somehow ambivalently also for a while that there's because also engaging in this huge social protest is resource demanding and yeah, some voices yeah. within the labor will say well the key here is not necessarily to to secure price of consumption but to ensure working condition and salaries yeah sure because that sure. this battle is extremely resource demanding so it would make more sense of um, to to focus on the more core labor issue mm. however labor is also seemingly very ambivalent on this because of their weakness to actually protect salaries and and income levels of their members or the general mm. Nigerian uh income levels yeah but when they can't do that this subsidy protest has also kept the Nigerian union relevant in times of mm-hmm. weakening so this there's something about what what is the importance of subsidy and social protest to the unions not necessarily mm-hmm. only the other way around mm-hmm. so so i think unions have kept relevant through this not least because they have not been able to lift workers properly mm-hmm. for yeah. a long time so mm. there's a very difficult relationship here Mm. Does that make sense or is it? Mm, yeah, it does. I mean, it's yeah. uh it's uh it's a lot to it's a lot to chew on. Um yeah. and uh, in trying to chew on it at, at I mean for the benefit of our listeners mostly. I think 
the question that springs from that, you know, would be to ask if, you know, because of this ambivalence that you, you, you speak of, uh, you know, where the unions find themselves, you know, today, um, maybe like, say, a, a decade or, or, yeah, less, less than two years, about a decade, roughly about a decade after the leadership of um, a who would later go on to become um, a governor of his own mm-hmm. state. Um, and and where we are now, you know, the transition in between and where we are now with present leadership of, of the union and and um, the difference in 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 context, you know, between two thousand and twelve and two thousand and twenty three. Um, the sense I get or the feeling I get is that I mean I mean this is not something you said, but I think that you kind of provide some kind of justification for why perhaps, you know, the labor unions are placing more emphasis on the alternatives, you know, the petrol, you know, such as, you know, auto gas, compressed natural gas. Um, and, and then, you know, uh, um, hammering down on, 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 on the refining capacity of, of the Nigerian state, you know, with, you know, the refineries. Um, I think that some of that is also a pushback against, you know, the fact that even the central bank has, or the central bank under its former leadership decided um, to to kind of subsidize, you know, uh, private refineries like uh, yeah. the Dangote one. Mm. Mm. Um, sure. Yeah, so um, I guess... I mean, that's kind of the context within which we find ourselves increasingly in 2023. You know, and so perhaps I think my question is, is, is um, I mean, it's, it's, it's perhaps it's probably the big question here. Um, is Nigeria's petrol subsidy still what fighting for, do you think? Um, especially from the point of view that... Um, the tactic of um, or tactics of um, the union is not something that you know everyday Nigerians recognize. Because mm. I, I say that mm. bearing in mind that you know um, popular public opinion seems to, to think, and and this has uh, uh, been the case for some time, at least in the last decade, that uh, labor unions have sold mm. out. Mm. Yeah. Can I just, because you said that I provided some kind of justification for the labor process of refinery focus. Um, mm. I I try to say that I don't think the policies have changed as much sure. as many things. Um, <laughs> I don't know, I'm supposed to be a researcher, so I'm not supposed to have personal opinions. But in this context, <laughs> I think I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very much so. I, I think the focus on refineries as kind of the leverage point is a very short-sighted and insufficient one. Mm. I, 
I, I don't get why. I understand this idea of rebuilding the refineries to have good old-fashioned value added in Nigeria instead of this absurd situation of sending raw oil out and having refined products in. That is mm -hmm. absurd. Yes. So I do not think that the the unions, when they say that if we have our own refineries, there will be no subsidies, but prices will be cheap. I think mm -hmm. that is not how the economy works. Right. Nigeria is part of a capitalist society where market prices defines this. So mm -hmm. if the the refineries work, there will be value added in Nigeria, but sure. the prices for the consumers, there's nothing in the market open market economy that says that the the price at the pump will be cheaper. I don't get that at all. Mm -hmm. I don't think it makes sense. Uh so uh, and there's there's another thing that um, because there's a tendency to talk about what labor does, but there's and and Said and and me we've been talking a lot about this in other contexts that there's there's a lot of expectation to labor but very little engagement with labor, and mm -hmm. that is both in terms of having conversations with labor, but not least getting into labor, organizing, being part of labor. Yeah, sure. In, in the 80s and the 90s, the, yeah. the academic and intellectual capacity in, in the academic unions and in the student movement was absolutely key in the strategizing and, and making labor what it is. Mm -hmm. Where are the students and academics and the intellectuals in engaging with the unions now? There, there are individuals out there, but it's not as big and systematic. And we also have the the collapse of the educational system. But, but there's still. I've I've talked to so many Nigerians who are disappointed with with the unions, but so few of them talk to the unions or even become members of the unions. Yeah, sure. So, so there, there's an organizational thing that is also, I think, the biggest opportunity after 2012 was taken by the political parties and not mm -hmm. by civil society and the left so mm -hmm. so that's uh, one thing but america you mentioned also the the subsidies on um uh on the production side to yeah. to dangote and i think that is also extremely important to keep in mind that both internationally and in many countries, there are so much subsidies for production that we never talk about. That yeah. is literally, I mean, if you also talked about this last time about how we frame this consumer fuel subsidies as something benefiting the rich, mm -hmm. subsidizing production and building refineries with Agota, that is benefiting the rich. <laughs> and and it yeah. is this- Absolutely. Uh, there's there's a mind-blowing lack of talk about it globally, internationally. I've been reading IMF and World Bank reports, and and I don't know how much, but it's all of them define fuel subsidies as production subsidies, consumption subsidies, and some of them also talk about kind of the subsidies indirectly via the cost of the impact of fossil combustion. Yeah. yeah. 
but somehow the production subsidies disappears from the rest of the analysis. <laughs> yeah, I wonder it's, why. It's quite consistent. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I, exactly. So, I'm, yeah. I mean, yeah. I I, th I think admitting that quote unquote capitalism requires these constant huge injections of capital from the state might be a little embarrassing for some people. So um, <laughs> may, may, yeah. maybe that's why. Especially in oil. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. So um, yeah. now I feel I forgot to, but I think, yeah, your, uh, the, the changes in labor, if you look at the documents of the strategic documents, of how NLC defines itself, there is not as direct reference to being the voice of the people representing beyond its members, mm. being kind of kind of a, a social movement beyond labor. It, it still says that that's the aim, but it, in more indirect forms, and and it's more focused on on being a labor but that's a mm. two-way thing it comes partly from the how labor defines things themselves but also the expectations this ambivalence yeah. towards labor that they they should be there for the larger society but there's there's also a distrust and and so so they don't claim as much voice as before and they're not giving as much Mm. I don't know, acceptance oh, I... as representatives from the outside. So I think there's a, yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. So, I I mean, would I be right to suggest that, you know, you were saying that because of its limitations, it's probably not even fighting for petrol subsidy for the mass of the Nigerian people. Uh, no, I think that would be taking it too far. Well, I I don't know. Yeah. I don't know yeah. about the motivation in the head of Joe Ajero when he says sure. that they want to protest on behalf of. I think this legacy of of social movement is still with the NLC and other unions. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Cert certainly, when you talk to them and when you read what they say, uh, I can only relate to what they say not understand yeah. what they think but but to say that they have left that idea i think they haven't left it they it but it's it's somehow more moderate whereas the mm. new president is more directly open about having that kind of role yeah. but i think it's more when we talk about the difference between agency and power i think there's still a certain will, but some changes to how they formulate and define themselves, but not mm. as much as kind of the large conversation of disappointments in unions. But I think there is the long-term pressure on labor through liberalization and reorganization of system mm. and bashing on their rights and, and going after them is underestimated. And I think for unions to, to play the expected role, they need to be re-empowered. And that has to do with people actually being members and being part, including yeah. the intellectual society in Nigeria. So there's high expectations. So so I think there's 
there's an ambivalence here on where I think in many ways labor delivers more than they're being credited for, mm. but they're also less powerful than they are expected to be. Mm. And I think that is labor's kind of summed up difficult situation. <laughs> and that is yeah. not only in Nigeria. I think this could be almost any country. Yeah, sure. Well said. Hmm. You know, um, when you talk about, I mean, back this, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to draw this out, you know, too long, but I, I just use it and then move on to one final question. Um, rather, I'll just pose it and then move on. I, and so this is basically like my own opinion. I think that um, the the idea that labor doesn't have power or as much power as it used to have is valid, especially from the point of view of uh, um, how it replenishes its its base. You know, are there people going into the unions? be they intellectuals, be them, be they workers, um, you know, across board within different sectors. Um, but I think that over the over time, you know, um, and, and this owes to a lot of economic decisions that, you know, that have been made in the past, but over time, part of why labor's power has been weakened um, is not so much the fact that um, you know people don't engage with labor in terms in terms of joining up, I mean that 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 exists if you ask me. But I think that labor's um, ability to um, I don't want to say draw blood, but labor's ability to yeah. effectually effectively resist power you know leverage of the state yeah is 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 limited to the energy industry to oil and maybe mm -hmm. gas right um increasingly in its response to you know all the other um kinds of strike whether be they by doctors uh, academic staff you know of uh, mm -hmm. asu or all of that is that Really, it, the, the government's attitude is that they don't care, you know. Um, and then the only reason why they, they actually do care about energy, especially oil, you know, as we speak today, is because that's the mainstay of the Nigerian economy. That's what, you know, really gives, that's where they get revenue from, you know. So mm. um, a labor strike any day, anytime, under the most useless of leaders, within that industry will cause severe havoc to put their own interests and, you know, the larger Nigerian economy. And I, and I think that part of how, you know, government exemplifies it, the one way that they did this last time was to go to court. Um, mm. And, yeah, this is something that perhaps we talked about in the last episode, you know, and, and Said's response is that, you know, this is shock therapy. You know, but I also think that it's evident in the ways that, you know, uh, the present government tries to shape public opinion. So then it then becomes uh, a question of 
what time, at what point would people get tired, really? Um, mm. so, so I guess that, not to answer my own question, but I guess that, yes, from that point of view, there's probably what something worth fighting from, you know, from the point, from the standpoint of the labor unions, because um, chances are that protests or resistance to, you know, this current regime of um, fuel subsidy removal would mm -hmm. probably go on with or without organized labor. Right. And so uh, I, I, I guess that's my own um, take on, on it, you know. Uh, well, 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 but if I could just jump in there, I mean, I get, I guess. So, okay. I mean, I mean, is this? I, I get, I guess. I mean, Camilla sort of seemed to um, maybe dance around the question a little bit. So, I, <laughs> so I kind of wonder. I mean, how she'd address it head on, like I, you know, having heard you phrase it that way, as like the subsidy is worth fighting for because. Mm. It's it still asserts, or it's one of the ways in which labor remains relevant. Like I, I wonder if you, I wonder if, if you would endorse that phrasing as well, Camilla. Like that, you know, the the subsidy is worth fighting for partially because, you know, it keeps labor relevant. Or or do you or do you feel like it's a little more complicated? I think it, it's always more complicated. But <laughs> ideally, I would, yeah. I if my. If I would run Nigeria, I think I would. I would I would keep the subsidies uh, and fight for it partly to use it mm -hmm. as a leverage to build something else, and right. that part is as complicated as the fuel subsidy itself. How right. how should we trust the leaders? How should we trust anything to mm -hmm. happen? And I completely sympathize with the idea of as long as there's nothing else on the table, when there's no alternative energy, when there's no electricity, when there's yeah. no welfare system, at least we have cheap fuel. Mm. And it's up to the elites. And I think I interviewed the, uh, one of the researchers in the Ghana TUC because they have also had the rounds of fuel subsidy, not as yeah. powerful as in Nigeria, but they've had the sure. same thing. Sure. And I presented the, the same kind of arguments of, well, but it's eating up the budgets and it's blah, 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 blah. And he said, well, we have a simple answer to that. Tax the rich. Mm. And yeah. Because there's a lack of conversation on how, how do we provide welfare? And I understand yeah. and sympathize with the idea, let's keep the cheap fuel until we have welfare. Then the question yeah. is, how do we build a welfare system mm -hmm. here? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. I don't know, uh, in 2012, the fuel subsidies took up one third of the state budget. That's yeah. enormous. Sure. And And part of the argument to remove it is because it's so enormous and it could be used better. The mm. answer from the street was like, well, if you just remove this, the corruption, we can still keep the subsidy because most of that yeah. part of the one third of the budget this is going into elite's pockets, not necessarily yeah. in. So, so there's a fundamental and extremely difficult thing at the bottom of this.
So mm. the subsidy has been a way of labor to be relevant, but it is also relevant for normal Nigerians whose yeah. real income, whether they're formal or informal sector, change yeah. overnight. Mm-hmm. And it's also important to remember that the middle classes that are supposedly the main beneficiaries of the subsidies, they will normally have compensation for increased subsidies. I talked yeah. to uh, the the trade unionist working in the Norwegian state oil company. He said that they even had it in the collective bargaining agreement in Pengasan at that company to uh to get extra salary when fuel prices increased mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. ordinary workers won't have that so well yeah yep. and 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 i mean in addition there are all these so-called palliatives announced i mean in a lot of cases there's support for businesses i mean tinubu's whole speech yeah. like a couple of weeks ago was all about uh-huh. like you know, support for businesses, which I, I'm not criticizing that in in and of itself, but that that doesn't necessarily mean anything Help for the poor. yes, yeah. the vast majority of people, particularly yeah. people working in the informal yeah. sector. And it's also interesting because um, in Norway, in the U.S., and in Europe, there's a definite move towards state intervention in the economy and the need to um to build private sector in energy transition and if if that also happens in nigeria this increased subsidies and a continued idea that uh, we have to have growth because before we can share that's crazy Mm -hmm. in a nigerian Mm -hmm. context there's so many rich people there's enough (laughs) to share there's enough to share at least a little bit more that i that may be yeah. a bit kind of not not very refined argument, but no. But yeah, you won't find yeah. very many people disagreeing with you on this mm. on this on this show. And I mean, moreover, the, the other point of that is, I mean, the the cost cannot continue to be borne disproportionately by some of the world's poorest people. Like that just that just can't and be the model. And that's basically what's happening. And exactly. from that. So, so in a way, whether or not to, it's worthwhile to keep the subsidies. The short mm. term is that the not keeping the subsidy is a problem for poor households. That's yeah. everyone agrees on that. IMF, mm. World Bank, everyone says this, but they say it and they move on. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and they talk about palliatives and basic income grants and all kinds of possible things, and they tend to forget to mention that. The reason why the subsidies are removed is to save money. It is not a rebudgeting exercise. Mm. Mm. So, if it was a rebudgeting exercise, fair and well. Yeah. Have an open yeah. citizen dialogue on what to do with those money. Yeah. But that's not the case here. It's to mm-hmm. save money. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's it. that's that's interesting. You know that you raise that. Point, you know where you you, but I think that there are a couple of people that I might not necessarily agree with who would argue that perhaps in this instance that um, the the framing of 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 the issue of subsidy removal in Nigeria is ca- kind of like a rebudgeting uh, exercise 
you know, where you, you save money and then you you channel it elsewhere. Um, there are those who have argued, I mean, mm. perhaps maybe even all of the major political parties that went into the last election that... Uh, yeah, but if you look at the, the budget talks of all these political parties, they're talking about saving money. And the one big budget post to save is subsidies. And then they talk about some of this being used as palliatives and cushioning. But all of them agree that it's about saving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I mean, always I been the case. So, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I mean, they, yeah. they even go beyond just palliatives, you know, um, even though that's where I'm coming to. They, they, they kind of say that, oh, that money can be channeled into education, you know, it could be channeled into health, you know, it could be challenged into infrastructure development. You know, they, they, they always say, oh, we save money, but we, this is where we can put it. Um, and then that helps grow, you know, the economy. Um, the palliative... Because I, I like to differentiate between palliative and, and intervention. So I guess that what I want to speak more to is the intervention, you know. Um, but, you know, th there's also always the palliative as stopgap measure because um, I think it's always clear to, you know, to the ruling class that whatever um, policy changes, uh, that I mean, that the, um, what's it called? That fallout of, of, of a policy change like subsidy removal would yeah. be catastrophic. And and then simply to buy time, you know, that's where they come up with, you know, the palliatives, you know, and then run narratives around why, you know, you should give them some time. Um especially and, and sometime till basically they, they they're able to have transitioned into what kind of interventions that they want to pursue. Part of that intervention, as as we speak, is uh, um, a, a transition from fossil fuel to uh, um, alternatives like auto gas and, and then you know compressed natu natural gas. And part of their own argument for this is 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 and lies within with the emphasis of um, its environmental benefit. So I wonder how. You know, as a final question from me, how you would respond to, um, you know, criticisms of, of petrol subsidies in 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 the developing world, you know, and I, I mean in this instance Nigeria, um, the kind of critique that emphasizes, you know, these environmental benefits of more much much more cleaner energy, you know, uh, as as one of or the major incentive for you know um the removal of, of, of subsidy fuel you know, even though i mean it's obvious that uh, we don't produce we don't contribute the highest to you know uh carbon emissions you know yeah yeah um, I think the short version is that I have been criticizing because this kind of the environmental argument has also uh, ended up with left uh, people in the global north, including in Norway, supporting yeah. subsidy removal because that makes sense. And they buy into the idea that um, the, the subsidies kind of 
built up under and continues um, uh, support and upholds an industry that is deeply problematic for our ecology and for the environment and for the long-term survival of the planet, basically. Yeah. And I understand somehow that that, but my problem is that many of them kind of insist that not acknowledging because they also tend to insist on this it's the elites and the upper middle classes that benefits and it, it's also different to the rhetoric used in these countries like we've had protests against increased fuel prices in a lot of global north countries uh including in norway and and then suddenly it's important to acknowledge the detrimental effect on the poorer household and we should cushion and have processes and mm -hmm. come up with mm -hmm. alternative politics whereas it's dismissed when we talk about the global south it's, it's like we change our glasses when we talk about things happening far away i don't know and yeah so so i think it's it's deeply unproblematic especially when it is combined with a lack of focus on on uh, production subsidies mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean the global left and the environmental movement is also against subsidizing production but it's because all these huge institutions that rights i mean there's there's a humongous production of of academic and policy reports from the international energy agency imf the oecd the you name it you'll find a report on this arguing mm. again for su removing inefficient subsidies and yeah. they also argue that it is in the interest of the poor and development to do so mm. but they don't have kind of a sufficient understanding of the details and that is very frustrating and mm -hmm. you'll even find that last year when we had the increased energy prices including fuel prices in the wake of the the invasion of ukraine mm. the imf goes out in europe and say now we need to consider the poor because all these energy price increases is a problem for the poor <laughs> so that so, mm. so so there, there's um there's a story here that is very, mm. very problematic, uh, and and you will see that uh, the Guardian that has now a lot of focus on climate journalism, mm -hmm. they love to to report these numbers of these humongous uh, subsidies uh, yeah. happening, and as opposed to most other subsidies. In this context, they tend to include numbers for the cost of the indirect impact of uh, of fossil combustion. Yeah. So, the cost of treating health issues because of uh, respiratorical problems, climate change, health, security, all these, the, the numbers are so high, you'll, you'll be dizzy. I think... Uh, the World Bank talks about six trillion U.S. dollars in indirect subsidies, which means okay. the cost of mm -hmm. the impact of fossil industry 
combustion, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And those numbers float around. And for yeah. some reason, it's pointed basically to the subsidy of consumption. And the World Bank forgot to mention the subsidy of production of oil, though they mentioned mm -hmm. the subsidy of fertilizers in the agricultural sector. <laughs> I couldn't find the numbers. So, yeah. So there's there's um, yeah. inequality in how we talk about these things that is deeply problematic, I think. Yeah. And when it comes to environment, I have tried to. This is not a kind of a broad. Uh, research, but just the sense. I, I talked to several of my friends in the environmental organizations in Nigeria and I asked them how they felt about the fuel subsidies in Nigeria, given that it is supposed to uphold and maintain a deeply problematic uh, uh, industry. Mm -hmm. And I've yet to come across anyone who supports removal of the subsidies because they say, mm -hmm. well, in the short term, this is so important socially for our people that we need the subsidies. Maybe in mm -hmm. the long term, but short term, even the environmentalists don't support removing the subsidies. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, and I think quite helpful because you bring the question of justice in a way back on the table yeah. right um i think which is crucial and which i think is all too easily um sidestepped by people who want to emphasize the various benefits you know that removals can bring both in developmental terms and in budgetary terms without talking about the unequal distribution of suffering <laughs> um yeah that, that would yeah. result um, you know, from these kinds of, from these kinds mm. of policies. So, um, listen. Can I just yeah. quickly yeah. say a fact, factual thing? Sure. Because yeah. when you mentioned America that the moving away from fossil to natural gas, natural gas is also a fossil. <laughs> um, but True. my yeah. own country has been lobbying the European Union to accept natural gas as green. Hmm. But mm. it is a fossil uh, fossil uh, energy source as well, right. but it's slightly less uh, impactful in its consumption uh, than uh, <laughs> oil and coal. So yeah. Nigeria has the same kind of approach as my own country to mm -hmm. accept natural gas as slightly better than oil. But, yeah. but the renewable industry with solar, wind, uh hydropower i mean that's the future yeah yeah and 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 nigeria will have a problem in the long run if if uh if there's no transition and that will also be a problem mm. for for the poor and for the industry in general i mean the future is green so yeah. there sh there should be a plan to to transition somehow mm -hmm. the 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 green is is pretty far away still, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, mm. no, that's a fair point. Um, so there's there's some fudging of definitions that seems to be happening. Um, so I, <laughs> I guess Nigeria will probably want to hope that the fudging of definitions continues indefinitely. Um, yeah, our countries know, are on the same page here. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Maybe yeah. maybe maybe we have to do an addition <laughs> on the on the Norwegian scam. <laughs> um but but yeah that won't that won't be today because we've taken up 
quite a bit of your time already, um, for which we should say thank you very much. Um, and yeah, I mean, I suppose that's probably the best place to wrap up, um, you know, moments before a new general strike is announced. Um, mm. I, I think this will probably come out before that. Um, so, um, yeah, I think you've provided a lot of insights for us today on, on thinking through these questions. And I hope we can call you back yes. at another point um, to, to talk Thank some more. Thank you so much. Isn't there a warning strike already? Yeah, that's it. It's the warning strike I was referring to, sorry, um, mm. that oh. that has been teased. Yeah. So we'll see if if it will be more of an Occupy or more of um, the, the, the strikes that happened before Occupy. Um, and um, yeah, it would be good at that point perhaps to um, have another conversation. But I suppose we should probably leave it here for today.